today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Premier Doug Ford announced a probe that would look into former Liberal government spending habits, and the Commission's going to report its findings by the end of August. And also, the uh, Premier says that uh, that sex ed thing, well, the teachers are going to have a little more flexibility when it comes to the curriculum. Is this a kinder, gentler Doug Ford we're seeing? Hmm. Alan Carter is the anchor, of course, of uh, Global News at 530 and 6 and Queen's Park Bureau Chief. He joins us to talk about this. Morning, Alan. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Bill. How about you? Good, good. Listen, there's all sorts of concern and, and, and interest about uh, Doug Ford during the campaign, of course. That Listen, this is a guy that only had one term on council. He doesn't really get this thing about politics, and he's going to be a bull in a china shop right now. Uh, give me a, I, I saw the piece you did the other night on Global about this, uh, about his, his style and his attitude and his government style. Does it surprise you? Well, I, I don't think it uh, has surprised me very much. I, day one in the legislature, he was quite restrained, but I think we saw something in day two that was more akin to what we sort of would expect from uh, Mr. Ford. Uh, he was asked to withdraw some rather heated comments about the NDP, claiming that the opposition was police haters and veterans hater and military haters. <clears throat> and then outside the House, Leader Andrea Horvath said that she refused to be bullied by a bully, and that's what Mr. Ford is. So early early on, things are tense. Uh, things are, I mean, there's a certain level of drama to the House all the time, so you know, take it with a bit of a grain of salt. But still, I think it indicates the kind of way that the Ford government is going to communicate. And the other thing that, Bill, I think you really have to notice, there's two great examples of it, is how the government is going to parse language. For example, uh, Mayo Schmidt, the now ousted CEO of Hydro One, got zero severance. Zero severance, people. Mm-hmm. He did get $9 million in other benefits uh, and stock options, reportedly, but no severance, and the government sticks to that. And then yesterday, again, Mr. Ford uh, very much talking about, we're going to teach the 2014 uh, version of the curriculum of the sex ed curriculum, 2014 version, 2014, the the curriculum that was taught in 2014. Well, there's no such thing. The curriculum that was taught in 2014 was written in 1998. So it's, again, it's this parsing of language that is very interesting and and notable early on in the tenure of this government. It's it's uh, it's always you know the 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 prism and that they want to look through on this is always going to be a positive thing and we're doing and I got that impression too Alan just in the first couple of weeks that uh, that uh, they've been in power right now is they want to make a splash and clearly they seem to be doing that with some of their announcements. Certainly, the government has uh, decided it wants to be very you know loud and active and very uh, you know in your not in your face so much but very f- top of mind. The government has decided that it wants to look extremely active, and it certainly has done. You, I mean, you absolutely, we have a rare summer sitting. They're going to pass this omnibus bill by next week. Um, that will go through, and then it looks like they'll return at the regularly scheduled legislative sitting um, on the, the Monday after Labor Day, and then right back at it again. So this government is not wasting any time in getting things done. Which is really contrary to what a lot of folks might have thought with a guy who had literally no provincial experience, obviously, uh, that maybe there'd be a learning curve. It's almost as if they're trying to prove that, no, we, we're going to hit the ground running. We, we don't need to, to find out what's going on. We already get it. 
Absolutely, and and I think it you know it speaks to Mr. Ford's character that uh, you know a new day has dawned and help is coming and all of those promises that he made on the campaign trail and you know let's call it what it is Mr. Ford is uh, a politician who m- made a bunch of promises and it you know he is endeavoring to. Uh, make those promises come true as quickly as possible. Now, you can be cynical about whether he's actually, you know, making promises come true or whether those promises are the right thing for Ontario, but that, you know, those are partisan decisions. I mean, straight up, Mr. Ford is delivering on what he said he would do. Yeah, and, and the Mayor Schmidt thing, I guess, is a classic example of that. Uh, you know, they it's almost when you bring up the idea of the $9 million in, in stock options, it's like, uh, well, that doesn't matter. That doesn't, that's not what, it, you know, that was in the contract anyway. Uh, and he just wants to pretend that didn't happen. In other words, you know, don't look at the man behind the curtain here. Just listen to what I'm saying. And that speaks again to this entire communications policy and uh, idea. It's very reminiscent, of course, of the Harper government. And the reason is, is that there's so many former Harperites running the show for Mr. Ford. So it's very reminiscent in terms of this very top-down uh, communication strategy. Everything goes through the premier's office, just like it. everything went through the prime minister's office when Harper was in charge. And only a certain number of ministers are allowed to speak. For example, very noteworthy yesterday that in the midst of all of this controversy over the sexual education curriculum, the minister of education, Lisa Thompson, did not speak to reporters outside of the house, which is tradition. And so when suddenly you have ministers all of a sudden who look like they looked like earlier this week she misspoke now she's not talking at all and mr ford's taking questions on on her behalf so i think that says a lot about the way he's going to run his government did they walk back on that promise about about scrapping the curriculum i mean her comments earlier in the week indicated that there was going to be some flexibility and and as you say she seemed to be shopped off to the corner there for a little while but ford seemed to reiterate that yesterday too didn't he well he said there was uh, that there was a leeway in the and once again calling it the 2014 version it's not that doesn't exist it's the 1998 curriculum that there is leeway uh to teach a lot of different things in that curriculum and that listen it was good enough for kids in 2014 and they're smart and they're fine so let's not all panic we're going to do some consultation and we'll update the curriculum when we get that done but again, just to, to stay on message, and, and they seem to be doing that. But the the energy ministers done the same thing, did? I mean, their announcement at the beginning of this week that they've canceled all of these green energy contracts, and and I know that a number of you guys in the press gallery were saying, okay, well, at what cost? Well, I don't, I don't, we don't know. I don't don't even bring that up. Don't talk about that. But I mean, clearly, there's got to be a cost. I mean, if you rip up a contract that's in play right now, there's got to be some legal consequences. But they don't seem to want to talk about that. Well, that's exactly it. And then there is this legislation that the Minister uh, Minister Rickford is talking about that is uh, apparently going to protect the government from any kind of lawsuits from cancelled projects. But th- this raises all kinds of questions about doing business in this province. And in terms of you enter into a contract uh, with the provincial government, you know, you you can't sue if it's, if it's cancelled. What will that mean for you know, business going forward. And, of course, you know, the the irony is not lost on anyone, especially with this White Pines um, turbine, wind turbine mm, farm yeah. in Prince Edward County, the one that's already under construction, the one that the uh, CEO of the company in charge says it's going to cost at least $100 million to cancel this thing. Well, that sounds a lot like, I don't know, what what were those two words again, Bill? Uh, gas plant, I think. That comes to mind. I think that's, those are the yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah. 
maybe maybe the dollar amount is is not the same not yet anyway but we don't know uh, because that was one situation that you guys talked about but now he's what was the 360 other contracts or something like that that they've talked about so we don't know what that's going to cost uh, the the other element of that that I wanted to ask you about too is this uh, this bill that they proposed to to, to get going uh, uh, about controlling the amount of money that they can pay to the CEO with Hydro One. Uh, and now I'm not a lawyer, Alan, but I, the first question I had is: there a minority shareholder in that? Can they actually dictate those terms? Well, they are still the largest single yeah. shareholder. So yes, in in, uh, in in effect, that they can appoint the majority of the board members, which then can effect those changes. Okay, but but if the other people that you know, like you say they're a minority shareholder, but the the largest one. But if the other shareholders say no, uh, they get voted, don't they? That is possible. The, it, you know, all of that stuff is incredibly murky still to try and figure out how that works through in terms of the board of directors. But it certainly appears that the provincial government, even though they are a minority, uh, that they, in, in fact, actually, we never did sell 60%. We're still around 50%. We still have not sold the last 10% of the utility. And the province still has enough sway with that largest uh, shareholder role that they can influence the board and pass what they like. That's why they. That's why they were able to say, "Well, you can get rid of Mayo Schmidt." Mm-hmm. I got to ask you about this commission that uh, that they've announced, and Gordon Campbell, the former British Columbia uh, premier, is going to actually oversee this whole thing. Uh, there are some that suggest that this is really just a witch hunt to try to, th- to throw more stuff at Kathleen Wynne and say it's all her fault, it's all her fault. Is there is there a positive spin that they're putting on this? I mean, is there something the government can use this for? Or is it just going to be a, a club to, to beat the former government with? Well, there are two elements here. There's this initial report that's deadlined for August 31st, um, and that's kind of a high-level thing. And that's the one that seems to have this kind of, it's a bit of a meanness to it. it even when they were announcing it, Vic Fideli and, and uh, Peter Bethlen-Falvey and the Premier yesterday, it has a, we're going we're gonna to root out the, I don't think he said root out, pardon me, that's a, a previous Vic Fideli press conference. <laughs> but, you know, we're going we're gonna to find, you know, anything that was wrong, where money was wasted, anything that impacted the public's trust in financial spending and it did have this kind of feeling like well you know we're gonna we've won and now we're gonna go back and just you know stomp on our opponents now that they're already down yeah kind of reminded me hey we're going after hillary's emails again isn't isn't that absolutely to me too it really had that feel um and so that one, the thing that comes out on the, on the, at the end of August, it, I think it pretty clearly has a political motivation to it. The other line-by-line audit, that has a longer um, time to be able to really look into it. And that, I think, there is some value to that. The criticism is we already have an auditor. Mm-hmm. We already have a, a financial accountability officer. We pay these people a significant amount of money out of the public purse, and now the government has come in and said, no, we're going to get somebody else. We're going to pay them up to a million dollars to do this. Uh, and and you wonder. I mean, I know the initial report is going to come at the end of August, but I mean, what are they looking for here? Are they are, are they are they going over under rocks here to try to find stuff, or, or is there a methodology to this? And because I haven't heard from Mr. Campbell about this at all, I'm only hearing from the premier. Well, we don't know exactly, and you know, I could keep in mind the the amount of time that you're looking at, and then also keep in mind that the auditor general basically her job is to look under all the rocks for waste for mismanagement, for problems. And so now we have this truncated time period 
with a staff that has yet to be hired and get going, and they're supposed to do a you know complete look at everything that the liberals ever spent money on and find all kinds of you know horror shows. I it, it's pretty questionable, and I think that the report is going to face an enormous amount of criticisms and questions as to what its real value is beyond you know, political points. Well, that's why I'm, I'm puzzled by this. And it's it's the timing element that surprises me because the Auditor General, Alan, if I recall, she put out a report just before the election, didn't she? I mean, and so nothing has happened. Nothing has transpired of any great consequence since then. So, I mean, if if I'm Gordon Campbell right now, I'm just going to ask Ms. Lizzie, can I have that report, please? I just want to borrow a few pages from it. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, is, it is a little odd to think what is it that they can possibly find. Here's the other thing that you got to keep your eye on is you got to really try and and grasp this entire accounting dispute and how we got here. Keep in mind that what happened how, really here's a quick sketch of the history. In 2003 when the Liberals win in Ontario and oust Ernie Eves, they of course as you recall say, "Oh, holy smokes, the cupboard is bare. We're billions in the hole." Uh, remember that pledge I said about no taxes? Well, I got to putting in this health premium because of it. And I can't do a bunch of other things. And then they said, well, let's make sure that never happens again. We're going to bring in legislation that says the auditor has to sign off on the books before an election. Fast forward a decade, we get an auditor, new auditor in the province, Bonnie Lissick, who says, you know what? The way that Ontario has counted its assets in the past for decades is wrong. The pension assets, the public pension assets that you put on the plus side of your ledger, they shouldn't be there. So instead of actually having a balanced budget, sorry folks, you're actually 12 billion in the hole. And the government kicks back and says, no, you're wrong. And that's how we got to where we are now. Mm -hmm. And and from what I'm reading from Vic Fidelli and from Doug Ford, they say they agree with the Auditor General. Do they really? I mean, is is that the, the contentious point here? Is is that twelve billion dollars? Well, I watch for this. At the very end of all of this, I suspect, and I, if I put money on it, is that Mr. Ford and his administration will say, "Thank you very much, Ms. Lissick. We're going to go with the other accounting method where we count pension assets on the plus side." And, and we'll take what was essentially the government's position all along. This whole thing about, wow, the, cook, the, the books are cooked, the auditor says they don't have money and they're, they're lying. I think at the end of the day, there will be less truth there than you think. Well, the proof will be in the pudding, obviously, to see what Quint Campbell's going to come up with in his report and, and, and just how they're going to do their bookkeeping. And, and as you mentioned in the piece you did on Global News, Alan, obviously, I mean, every government does this. I mean, this is not unique to Doug Ford and, and his uh, his administration, obviously. Uh, they all play fast and loose with the facts. And uh, like Jack Nicholson said in that movie, everything I say is some version of the truth. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And you're so right about governments. You know, they all bend language. When I talk about parsing words, I mean, every government bends language to its own will. Some are just much more obvious about it. And that's sort of what the Ford government is right now. Well, they, you know, for a new government, they've really picked that trick up pretty quickly, haven't they? Yeah, they sure have. <laughs> Alan, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Take care. Alan Carter, of course, anchor of uh, Global News at 530 and 6 and Queens Park Bureau Chief. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
interesting story about what's going to be happening in Gage Park in the next little while. A fallen firefighters memorial has been chosen uh, at Gage Park for the, as as its location, which I, I think is a pretty good idea. Uh, but there was a process in place. Not everybody seems to be pleased with what's going on. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Stan Double, who is the president of the Hamilton Firefighters Association. Stan, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Oh, good morning, Bill. How are you? Great, thanks so much. Uh, great idea. I, I think it's a great location. Maybe you could just kind of walk us through how you got to where you are now, how this process started, and, and, and how you got to, 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 to this location. Well, sure, Bill. Yeah, just uh, this has been a project that's uh, certainly uh, the concept of the project and then the planning of the project has uh, been ongoing for a number of years. Uh, we did a, a dynamic uh, search of the city uh, to see which may be the best location uh, for this project. Obviously, Gage Park uh, was the successful candidate. Uh, we we and all the other partners uh, with this project see that location as not just being a memorial, but a tourist attraction in a beautiful park. Uh, and once completed, would just be a tremendous addition uh, to that location. And we just didn't see another spot that uh, would be, be befitting of the memorial and certainly be befitting of uh, a place for citizens to attend, not just families of fallen firefighters. And it just uh, we're just so excited that uh, this project's uh, moving forward in that location. I, I'm just in my mind's eye as I, as I heard the story today. I figured, okay, where else if not there? And it, it's it's it just seems to be the best location for it. I mean, it's centrally located. Uh, lots and lots of people go to that park, so they're going to there's going to be a lot of eyes on this thing. And it just it just seems as if it's going to work. Now, the concern we're hearing from some of the residents, I guess, uh, is is really kind of beyond your means. I mean, it's all about planning and, and what they'd like to see in the park, but. Uh, I, 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 are we going to get into a discussion and a debate about this, about uh, about just how this this memorial would fit in with what else is going on at Gage Park? Well, I, I, I hope uh, you know that everybody certainly involved can uh, work together. Um, the plans for the memorial certainly fit within the uh, long-standing designs of, of the park. Um, it's uh, it's it's just going to follow in the footsteps of the pattern that exists in the park. And uh, like you said, uh, you know, when you look at other locations, we, we, we wanted to come up with something and somewhere where the people who are attending the park uh, can come across the memorial and uh, enjoy it, uh, not just, uh, you know, for families or for firefighters, but for, for, for visitors to the city and uh, citizens of the city. And uh, just hopefully we can all work uh, well together and see this project come to fruition. Um, by no means are we, uh, you know, looking to get into debates or, um, you know, some negativity with it. We're, we're hoping that we can all just uh, work well together to see this, uh, um, you know, come to a final finalization. Well, I think there's a, a lot of benefits to this. Obviously, I, I think we do need to do something uh, to remember those who who lost their lives and those who dedicated their lives, obviously to public safety, and that's obviously the uh, the mantra for the firefighters. But it's educational. I mean, and I always harken back to, for instance, what uh, what we have at uh, at Gore Park uh, with the uh, the veterans, uh, uh, you know, assembly down there, and the way that we've enhanced that over the last couple of years. And I I understand the firefighters' memorial is not going to be anywhere near as big as that. But but as you read some of those plaques and get some of this information, you, you're often in a situation where it's oh I didn't know that well that's fa- I didn't that's fabulous that's great news, and this is I think it's an it's a it's a learning moment for an awful lot of people to be able to have a memorial like this for firefighters. Oh, Bill, you couldn't uh, be more correct. Uh, 
you know, uh, from the inception of a city, uh, one of one of the longstanding, uh, um, you know, departments in a city is a fire department. And uh, when we talk about education and history and uh, a lengthy list of not just employees of the city of Hamilton, but uh, firefighters and, uh, um, you know, individuals who have uh, ultimately laid down their life for the protection of the city and the citizens of the city. It, it is a tremendous learning and historical place that, you know, when I think of the project, I don't think of just today. I think of 50 years from now or even 100 years from now, uh, you know, what it will mean and what, what it will look like. And uh, certainly that aspect of history and uh, and uh, a place to go mourn, um, you know, Gore Park is, is fascinating. If you know, in 50 years, we have a place where people can go uh, once or twice a year to memorialize their loved ones. Oh, that, that would just be a tremendous uh, boost for, I think, uh, the fire department, uh, the Hamilton Professional Firefighters Association, all the firefighters that have lost their lives and their families. Uh, just a, a great way to uh, put a, a point on that, Bill, the history and the uh, learning experience for people. One of the best ways to learn, obviously, is to is to tell stories and, and get that stuff. And and when you look at the, at that history of firefighting here in the city, Stan, it it is remarkable. And and as you go through history, which which I tend to want to do, I, I love our city and I, I love its its history as well. Uh, there there have been some incidents, of course, where firefighters have played a prominent role. The old Wentworth Arms Hotel fire from years ago. Uh, the one that uh, I guess should ring true with just about everybody, which is maybe the the shining moment for Hamilton firefighters, was Plastimed back in 1997, uh, where where the firefighters acted so professionally, so so courageously in in one of the could have been one of the great catastrophes and was in fact, but I mean it was handled and manipulated and, and controlled in such a great fashion. There's there's a lot of stories to tell here. Oh, uh, agreed. Uh, uh, you know, 1997 was. Uh a real turning point uh, uh, for firefighters uh, across the country, uh, for firefighters here in Hamilton and the department. Uh, we learned so much, and we did fight so valiantly that, uh, you know, week uh, back in 1997. Uh, but, uh, you know, horribly, the fallout has, uh, you know, is rearing its ugly head where we have seen firefighters uh, become sick and ultimately uh, pass as a result of their illness related to that uh, a terrible fire, and uh, we see this as a, a tremendous way to pay honor to them, uh, not just as firefighters, but as employees and citizens of this city as well. And uh, we just we couldn't be more excited. I mean, I'm going to declare my bias here, Stan, and, and I, I, we talked about this on the program before. Uh, I, I don't think we do enough in this community to honor first responders. Uh, and, and that's not to suggest that there's a, a great deal of disrespect. I think quite the contrary. But other communities do that. They do have memorials. They do have things like this. And I know there was a discussion at City Council uh, a couple of years ago, I guess now, uh, about naming some of the overpasses on the link after fallen uh, police officers. And, and Council seemed to, to hedge on that. And I quite don't quite understand why. I, I think we need to be more more overt about our our. Our, 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 our feelings, I guess, are with those who put their lives on the line. And firefighters, let's face it, put their lives on the line every time that bell rings and they go out on a call. Uh, we, we do. That, that's for sure. Uh, uh, you know, if any opportunity that uh, there is to recognize any first responder in, in all our resources, uh, fire, police, EMS, you know, together we certainly, uh, you know, like to take that opportunity to remind the uh, first, the city we work for, the citizens we represent, uh, that the hard work that we do every day to ensure that they're safe. Um, you know, I, I am also a, 
you know, a proponent, a fan of, um, um, you know, naming parks and uh, overpasses and uh, memorializing not just uh, fire, but police and EMS and all emergency services worker, because it is unique work. Um, uh, you know, uh, the average citizen uh, knows who we are, uh, sees what we do, um, but it's a lot of times it's behind the scenes and uh, the aftermath that uh, people don't get to hear or see. And uh, But that's our job, uh, to certainly ensure that um, people are recognized and the work that we do and, you know, in conjunction with the corporation, the City of Hamilton, how, how well we work together to ensure that uh, um, people don't get forgotten. And I uh, certainly support all those initiatives. I mean, this is a, it's a complicated job, and it's a, it's a career, it's a vocation, uh, and, and takes an immense amount of training uh, and knowledge, because, I mean, you know, when, when you go to a scene, obviously, Stan, you, you don't know what you're going to face, you don't know what you're going to go into, and you've got, uh, when you get on site, you've got like about 15 seconds, I guess, to devise a game plan. Well, that's true. We do a tremendous amount of training, and there's a tremendous amount of coordination between all resources. Um, lots of times, it's experience that helps, you know, uh, on the fire department alone, we've seen a tremendous turnover of uh, firefighters in the city of Hamilton, but newer firefighters rely on the experience of uh, uh, veteran firefighters. Um, you know, the split uh, second decisions, we do well. Uh, I certainly uh, respect uh, all uh, firefighters uh, in the city of Hamilton. We, we do our best to protect the citizens of Hamilton. And, and you're right, uh, we do a tremendous amount of training and uh, sometimes on scene, it takes seconds to make decisions and to save lives. And that's something that we're very excited to do on behalf of all the citizens of Hamilton. You guys are going through a bit of a transition, though, really, aren't you? I know that's more of a management thing, but I mean, a lot of your senior guys that have been there for a long, long time have, have finally decided to step aside. And uh, and obviously, you're moving up through the ranks right now. So it's, I, I guess, one of those situations where there's some new blood coming into the situation like this. And uh, it's, it's a different kind of uh, game now, isn't it, firefighting, than it was 15, 20 years ago? It is, um, uh, you know, uh, no different than any uh, other occupation or employer. Things become secular in the uh, 1980s. Uh, we saw an influx of firefighters in the city of Hamilton, and lo and behold, 30, 35 years later, um, these people are transitioning uh, out of employment into retirement, and uh, we see that influx of uh, new firefighters into the city of Hampton. It certainly creates some challenges. Uh, you know, we're hiring and training and getting firefighters on the ground uh, in high numbers right now, but everybody's working tremendously uh, uh, together to ensure that there's no, you know, our service delivery couldn't be any better. And uh, we certainly uh, are excited about uh, this fresh new face of the fire department. What's, uh, what's the next step here in the process? I mean, council's obviously okayed this. Uh, and I, I like the location. I know, as I say, some of the neighbors are concerned, but I, I'd like to think everybody can get around the table and, and come to some, some common ground and find this thing. But uh, how soon do you, do you get? I guess you have to start with the design before you start putting a shovel on the ground, don't you? Yeah, correct. There are some preliminary designs. I can tell you, Bill, they, they, they look spectacular. I'm extremely pleased about the preliminary designs. So I think the next step is ultimately... Uh, looking, having a harder look at these designs and, and seeing how it fits into the uh, footprint of the park and, um, you know, coming to some agreement with uh, all the parties at the table and say, this is the design we're going to move forward and what's the next step. So timelines, uh, I don't have that for you. Um, you know, uh, we're going to take things easy and we're going to do this right. 
And, and I mean, one of the things that you always have to be cognizant of, obviously, and I'm sure you will be as you go through this process, Stan, is is make sure that whatever the design is, is is that it is it's it's congruent with the rest of the park. It's not something that's going to be garish, and people are going to say, "What'd you do that for?" I mean, there, there has to be a sensitivity. But I got to figure whoever's going to get the contract for this is going to take that into consideration. Oh, absolutely. Uh, like I said before, the footprint of the memorial fits right into uh, uh, the park and the design and the, uh, you know, uh, the way that uh, the pathways are set out. Uh, this will not be something that people go, oh, that sticks out uh, differently than the rest of the park. This will be something that certainly magnifies the importance of the park and uh, uh, the, the type of structures and uh, the footpaths that are there now. Uh, the location that that we saw that uh, that that seemed to be the one that, that that you're looking for right now, they're saying it's the northeast corner of the park. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, uh, closer to uh, the building that's uh, designated as the Children's Museum. Yeah, not, not there, just in that corner. Yeah, and and again, that's uh, you know there there are a couple of other things that are there already. But what, what I like about it, obviously. Uh, from that standpoint, first of all, you're right. The Children's Museum in itself is a destination for some people. But but the other way, I mean, it's going to be close to Main Street as well, which I think is a pretty good idea. So I don't know if you're going to be able to see it from the street, but it certainly is, is going to be close by. And, and proximity and, and visual sighting, I guess, is going to be a key element to this. So people can can actually see exactly where it's going to be. Well, that's correct. Yeah, you know, some of the idea was, uh, you know, inside the, the park is, is huge. So if you put this uh, memorial in the center of the park, there's no visual from... Uh, the street. This the idea was uh, to have an attractive memorial that can be viewed uh, from the roadway and um, you know invite people to to walk in and see it. Well, there's a pathway from the uh, museum right through uh, up until uh, the, the neighboring neighborhood there, just on the side yeah. on the edge of the park. So I mean, it's probably somewhere along there would be the ideal spot for it. Yeah, we're still working on the exact uh, uh, footprint and location, uh, but certainly uh, the idea was to have some view and uh, make it attractive to to. To everybody, to citizens and neighbors. Now, council says this is going to come out of the uh, the 2019 budget, so I would assume that the the process in the meantime is to obviously get a design, uh, find out who's going to construct this thing. Uh, are we going to see this uh, like within a year, year and a half? What do you figure, Stan? Oh, I, I wouldn't be able to comment on completion. I can tell you that uh, uh, everybody's working hard and uh, moving forward with the plans, and uh, I think in the next few months we'll have a better idea of uh, timeline, Bill. Uh, so I wouldn't want to come on, comment on right that right now, but I certainly would want to thank everybody who's had any input into the project to to this point. Uh, um, committee workers, counselors, uh, people working on the design. Uh, I certainly look forward to working well with them all, and uh, we can lay out a timeline in the near future, hopefully. Well, it's a people place, and that's what we love about Gage Park. And uh, the and folks are down there. It'd be, I, I think, just a great idea to see this memorial and uh, remind them of the uh, the sacrifice made by so many people in this community. Stan, good luck with this, and uh, congratulations on uh, how far you've got on this. And uh, hopefully, we can get this thing up and done, and uh, sooner than later, and and everybody can enjoy. It. But I really appreciate you taking some time for us today. Well, thank you so much, Bill. Thanks for having me. Take care, Stan Double, who of course is the president of the Hamilton Firefighters Association. And and listen, I'm I'm, I'm understanding the friends of Gage Park, and uh, I, we've heard from that way back in my days on City Council when uh, Bernie Morelli and Dennis Haining and others were were in that area, and and always very very strong advocates for what was going on in the park. And 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 what I think they're looking for here is some sensitivity to what's going on in the park. And and 
I, I feel pretty confident that that's going to happen, that uh, that the city councilors and the folks that are going to be involved in this are, are going to take that into consideration. Of course they are. They're not going to do anything that's going to you know, all of a sudden say, what's that doing here? Uh, it, it's all in the design and it's all in the location. And I get a pretty good idea that this is going to work out just fine. And it's a good idea. And by the way, to go back to my, my point that I was talking with Stan a couple of minutes ago, uh, I really wish they'd, uh, they'd rethink this idea, too, about honoring fallen police officers. Uh, I know that there are some people in this community, certainly I think there's some people on the city council, uh, that don't seem to have a very high opinion of police officers, and that's unfortunate, uh, and it's wrong-headed. Uh, and I think we do have to pay attention, and we do have to honor those who sacrifice their lives in, in the name of public service. And that includes all first responders, including firefighters and police and, of course, uh, paramedics that, uh, that do such great work for us every day. Uh, and to do what we do uh, is, is, is not enough in, in this community. I just see happening. I mean, we, just, we were driving down the 401 the other day on the way to London, and, and the overpasses are, of course, all named after OPP officers who have died in the line of duty, and other communities have done the same sort of thing. And uh, there was a motion, as we remember, uh, a little while ago for city council to consider doing that for the overpasses on the Red Hill and the Link, and they, they just decided not to do it. And I can't understand what the rationale for that was. But maybe, maybe somebody on council will bring that idea back up again because uh, I think it's really something worth considering. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Obviously, Donald Trump's in the news, and we're going to get into that a little bit later in the show. But uh, so are NAFTA negotiations with the upcoming uh, midterm elections in the United States and certainly a federal election here next year. Uh, the fate of NAFTA, and in fact, because of that, the fate of our economy uh, is very much in doubt right now. And uh, it seems as if one of the main sticking points in the NAFTA negotiations is the idea of supply management, especially, obviously, toward the dairy industry, because that seems to be the, the point that the U.S. keeps hammering on. Why is this such a big deal? Why is this the issue that seems to be hanging up what could be a potential deal when it comes to NAFTA? I want to ask Marvin Ryder, business uh, professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, as he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Marvin. How are you doing today? I am great. Thank you, Bill. Listen, with, with uh, the auto trade and, and, and steel and aluminum tariffs and things of this nature and, and worth millions, if not billions of dollars in our, our two economies, why do we seem to be getting hung up on, on supply management? Yeah, I wish there was just one single silver bullet answer here. I think there's a combination of factors. Let me start with an American factor. Uh, America, as you know, does not have supply management, so therefore farms, whether they are small family operations or factory farms, can produce as much of a quantity as they want. There is no quota, so if I've got extra cows, I produce extra milk, and then we have a problem. If we've got surplus, where do we ship it to? And I think American farmers... Uh, who are facing this kind of a problem. They are producing more uh, food than Americans consume, want to start shipping it, and the logical place is to look north to Canada and say, well, look, there's a market there just uh, you know, 100 miles away, 200 miles away. Why can't we ship it there? Now, under supply management, not only do we have quotas within Canada that protect family farms and really stop individual farmers from competing directly with one another, but we set some quotas on what can come into our market. It would be wrong for me to tell you that American milk cannot come into Canada. In fact, uh, $500 million, $500 million, half a billion dollars of American dairy products come into Canada today totally duty-free. So when the Donald Trump says we put these duties on, he's not correct. We, we do let in milk duty-free. However, once you get to that $500 million mark, we say enough. That's enough 
for our marketplace, if you want to bring in more, we do slap a 300% duty on American milk in excess of that quota. And that's what the Americans are upset about. Now, why? a second reason why I think they hammer on this is that you and I, individuals listening to us, uh, we're all trying to stretch our dollar and make ends meet. And there is no doubt about it that supply management in Canada costs us a little something. There would be cheaper milk in from the United States, therefore cheaper cheese and probably cheaper eggs and cheaper chicken. That's a different marketing board, but all of those are under a form of supply management if we would let Americans into this marketplace. And so I'm sure there are people saying, well, I, you know, I'm looking at my bottom line here. If I could save a dollar a bag on milk and I go through a bag a week, that's 50 bucks a year in my pocket, I'd rather have it. Why not let them do it? So I think the third thing that goes on here is that Canada is quite prepared to modernize our supply management system. It's just that we aren't going to offer it up without something in exchange. And remember, America's put a number of items on the table that we don't like. The sunset clause that says NAFTA would expire after five years. And again, there's the stuff in the auto industry. There's some stuff on intellectual property. And so the whole concept here is NAFTA should be a negotiation We'll give you a little something on our side, but you've got to give something on your side. You'll remember, finally, that Donald Trump's strategy in this is, no, there's no negotiation. This is what I want. You give me what I want, and, and that's, that's the way this negotiation should work. So I think what Trump is trying to do is go directly to the average Canadian and say, because of this antiquated rule it's costing you money, put pressure on your government to cave in, and then we'll get a NAFTA deal. And I, I just think that's where we should not be negotiating. We shouldn't be negotiating in the press. We shouldn't be negotiating by firing off these quotes back and forth or tweets back and forth. It really should be done at the table in the context of a full NAFTA negotiation. And I, I, I know if you're agricultural and you're listening to us, you're not going to like what I'm about to say, but I think in a full NAFTA negotiation, when all the pieces are put together, yes, we'll be relaxing some rules in supply management. Canada did that to get a deal with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. They did that to get a deal with the European Union. And we are prepared to do that for the United States, but we're not going to offer it up unilaterally without something else in return. Well, but why are we at this ta- point in the negotiations and that's still on the table? I mean, if, if Canada is, is willing, and as you mentioned, then we already have a track record of, of modifying the supply management system. Why, why are we digging our heels in with the United States on this the, the, the negotiation? <laughs> well, in this situation, we're digging our heels in because the United States isn't giving us anything in return. So it's like negotiating for a house bill, and I want your appliances, and you say, fine, give me some more money. I said, no, no, I don't want to give you any money. Just give me the appliances. It can't be one-sided, and that's, the, that's what's why it's still coming up. I think we're prepared to move, but only if America is prepared to move on something and America has indicated it's not prepared to move. Therefore, we haven't resolved it. Therefore, Donald Trump still likes to bring it up over and over again. And remember, uh, farm country in the United States, kind of that Midwest area, is one of his bases of support. And so, uh, especially going into the midterm elections, and he's got to give people a reason to think that he's, he's still trying to make America great again, it's a point that he can hammer home that resonates well in the Midwest. But it's not a big part of the economy. And by the way, I'm not trying to diminish the agricultural industry. I'm just saying that there, there seem to be bigger fish in these negotiations, and they seem to just be concentrating on this one. You, he you, is, I, although I think reason is that it, he can explain it in a way that's easily digested by his base. You know, if I tried to get into intellectual property arguments and why we should be changing copyright rules or patent regulations or trademark regulations and modernizing them, you'd put his base to sleep at one of his rallies. 
it's easier for him to hold up a block of cheese or a glass of milk and say, you know, why aren't those Canadians letting our products in north of the border? Uh, I'm not trying to say that people are stupid, people are smart, but it's just much easier to communicate, I think, and that's why he keeps hammering at home. But, it, by the way, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation here that uh, there, obviously there is no supply management system in the United States, but 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 farmers there do get subsidies, don't oh, they? Oh, yes. So, I mean, that's another intricacy to this uh, negotiation. Uh, we don't have the same subsidized nature of the farm industry. We opted for supply management. So, you know, I think, again, what we're saying is we'll, we'll do some things, but, hey, you've got to do some things, too. So let's recognize your subsidies. Let's recognize, for instance, in, in the United States, many of the subsidies deal with food for the agricultural sector. So you've got to feed those chickens. You've got to feed those cows. You know, the United States helps subsidize the feed that goes into them. They don't have supply management, but they subsidize on that side. It would be certainly wrong for us to think that uh, America doesn't support their farmers in some way. And I think, finally, the other thing that Canada has to do here, too, is think about, uh, I'll call it transitional support. Um, when Stephen Harper led the negotiations on the, US, uh, the um, European Union free trade agreement, knowing that this was going to harm Canadians by letting uh, European cheeses into the marketplace, he came up with a support program to bridge. And I think that's the other thing. People need to remember that our farmers have been operating the way they have for over 100 years, with this kind of supply management. I can't snap my fingers and make it way, go away overnight and expect them to quickly adapt. So we're going to have to do something for them internally to help them transition from one kind of economy to another. And until you know what's going on in that deal, you haven't come up with a program, there's a lot of pieces here that have to come together. But we, since we've already done that uh, for the other deals, the European deal that you, uh, that you just referenced, uh, do we have to repeat that or enhance that package if we're going to do this with the, the NAFTA deal? Well, I th- I'm going to say yes, only because I believe what Trump wants is more than what the European Union wanted. Particularly what the European Union wanted was access in Canada for European cheeses. So uh, in Canada here, we, we had a very successful business making Canadian versions of European cheeses, like Canadian Gouda or Canadian Edam or Canadian Camembert, even Canadian Swiss cheese, and, and because the other cheeses were too prohibitively expensive. If we drop the terrier, tariff barriers, suddenly those real authentic European cheeses could come in and would, you know, do you want the Canadian version or do you want the real version? And so that was going to affect primarily the cheese industry. What Trump wants is uh, relaxing things in Turkey, turkeys on, on chicken, on eggs, uh, yes, just whole milk and cheese. So because it's a broader uh, range of relaxing of, of supply management, we probably need to have a different package for some different people. All right, and obviously I know that every time you and I have this conversation, I get feedback, and I'm certain that you do as well, from people in this industry that saying, wait a second, we don't want the government to abandon us here. Uh, is, is the government beholden to these people, to the fact that they're going to have to redesign some sort of a, a, a system to, to help them along, not unlike what happens in the United States? Yeah, and here's where you get some mixed signals from the United States. The agricultural secretary, um, I believe his name is Sonny Perdue, um, has said that he, he doesn't think Canada should abandon its supply management. Remember, one of the benefits of supply management is it's not every man for themselves. Farmers do not compete one against the other through a quota system. What they're suggesting is they just want a little more access. And so I think the, the uh, although depending on who you are, it could be a little more access or a lot more access, but they just want access. So I don't necessarily think we have to scare farmers into saying we're going to blow up completely supply management. 
I prefer to think of it as a modernization of supply management that recognizes the way the world is in, in 2018. So it is about, uh, uh, let's say, evolving our supply management system, not throwing it out completely, but allowing some, some other products into the market space uh, at the same time trying to make sure that we don't have competition one farm against another because that would actually drive many of the small farmers out of business and that's what we don't want they just don't have the economy of scale to compete with a so we call it a factory farm of a thousand acres if you were a family farm of a hundred acres we don't necessarily want them to lose so how do we find that balancing point this is a very typical canadian problem all right so i just want you to speculate here i mean which is really what we're all doing i guess with nafta now if this is one of the cards that we're holding yeah you want supply management we're dangling it in front of them there uh what are we asking for in return is it the sunset clause is it the is it the dispute uh, regulations that they're, that they're talking about here clearly there's got to be something big yeah i wouldn't say it's a one for one like that bill you know you you give us this and we'll give you supply management it's a package of things you hit upon uh, three of them there's there's four or five of these that are sticking points in the negotiation for us for us as being canada uh, one is the sunset clause. Two is dispute resolution. Remember how America wants to do this. Any disputes against America are resolved totally in American courts. Any disputes re- against you need a three-judge tribunal with judges from all three nations. We go, no, no, they've all got to be the same. Uh, the auto industry, remember that Trump was trying to get up to 85% North American content, and of that, 50% would be strictly American content. We, uh, we actually think we've chipped away a bit at that and found something. There's the intellectual property stuff as well. So there, there, are, there are three or four of these things. And, and actually, I don't think we're all that far away. If we could get everybody back to the table and get them focused, probably for three or four months, we could get a deal by Christmas time. Now, what Trump has said is he's not rushing these negotiations because he's not prepared to sign anything until after the midterm elections fine. Uh, But to sign it actually would have to be ratified by Congress, and of course there'll be a new Congress after the midterm elections. So none of that's going to happen until 2019. But nothing stops us from getting a deal. These international trade deals, there's always a big signing ceremony, and then it takes a year or two to actually ratify it. There are still nations in Europe ratifying Canada's free trade deal with the European Union. So, you know, you, you shouldn't necessarily think the final signature is the critical thing. Let's get back to the table, get it done. And here's the other reason, Bill. If we can get this NAFTA deal worked up, then what's Trump's argument for keeping the tariffs on steel and aluminum? Remember, he suspended them in the months of of, uh, April and May because we were talking about NAFTA. He only put them on June 1st because the NAFTA talks came to an end. Let's get back talking. Let's get a deal it would be even more reasons for him then to rescind those tariffs and we can get back to normal. By the speaking of that, I know I know that you predicted this, uh, that, that when those tariffs were put in place that Americans were going to start squawking, and apparently they already have. <laughs> and, and it's about the cost of beer. I mean, it's summertime, it's hot in the Midwest as it is here, and, and the beer it comes in aluminum cans and the price has gone up and people are outraged by this. But uh, it was, So that n- not totally unexpected at all. But w- what I wanted to get your read on uh, was the move yesterday by, by the U.S. Commerce Secretary to actually file a number of grievances with the World Trade Organization yeah. uh, against Canada, many of the European nations, and Turkey for, the, for that matter. Uh, and, and the rationale was, look, at the tariffs we put in place are fair because, you know, that's what we wanted to do. But it's totally unfair that these people would retaliate, uh, which, which I found rather bizarre and maybe just a little hypocritical. Well, n- not exactly. So uh, uh, June 1st, they put tariffs on Canada, other places. 
we had immediately filed a complaint with both the World Trade Organization and the NAFTA Tribunal. We said these are unfair tariffs. We are not a security risk to the United States. Therefore, these are actually, we use the term, illegal tariffs. And then what we said to the World Trade Organization, under the current rules that govern trade, if somebody puts illegal tariffs against you, you are allowed to retaliate. Therefore, we're letting you know that on July 1st, Canada is putting counter tariffs. Now, the Americans have a chance to respond when you complain like this. So they have a month, and sure enough, a month later they responded. There was only two ways America could respond. Way number one was to say, oh, yeah, our bad. We made a mistake. These are perfectly uh, illegal tariffs. We shouldn't have done this. Sorry, we're taking them off, and, and everything would be over. I wasn't expecting them to admit the tariffs no. were illegal. So their counter-argument is to say, no, no, we did nothing illegal. Our tariffs are perfectly illegal. By the way, the thing that is illegal is your response. Since our tariffs are illegal, you are not allowed under world trade to put tariffs. So they filed the counter-complaint. What does this do? It tees up a hearing. That hearing will be held after Labor Day by the World Trade Organization. A three-judge panel will hear both sides. Then they'll reserve judgment. It probably won't be until 2019 until we get a, an answer. Candidly, Bill, I think the, the World Trade Organization will support Canada and the European Union and others. They will say there is no security threat, and therefore these tariffs were illegal. But here's the funny thing. While the World Trade Organization has the power to order the United States to remove those tariffs and go back, Trump now is arguing that maybe he wants to drop out of the World Trade Organization if they don't give him what he wants. And, and by the way, that's new. I, that may be new for Trump, but not new for the United States. They haven't had much use for the WTA for the last number of years anyway, have they? Not for the last number of years, although interestingly, the World TO was created by the United States over 60 years ago to try to bring regularization of trade. It's a bit like, you know, don't, don't get what you wish for because it can come back to haunt you. If you want the rules to be fair for you, they've got to be fair for everybody, and that's one of the reasons why they aren't that happy with the World Trade Organization. Rather bizarre. Marvin Ryder at the uh, DeGroote School of Business. Thanks as always, Marvin. My pleasure, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.